Coming up this hour, we're going to have to talk COVID. We're talking Bethel. We're talking QAnon. And then for the rest of the hour, Pastor Rich Velotas and his new book, The Deeply Formed Life. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You know the drill, but I'm going to do it anyway. We're all over the place on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And we're also podcasted. I cannot recommend enough. You check us out. And while you're there, uh, subscribe, rate, review, send it to a friend. All of that does help us out a whole ton. I did make the mistake yesterday, Brian. Forgive me, please. I just jumped right to news. I just like got got right on down to it and didn't even pause to ask, how are you doing, my co-host friend? <laughs> I am doing great. I appreciate your care there. No, I'm doing great. Uh, enjoying the sunny weather. But I am... Uh, uh, while I am doing wonderfully, uh, or people may not know, you're about to head out on vacation. So tomorrow, so you must be feeling wonderful right now. I'm, I'm imposed. I'm, I'm uh, projecting my own feelings there, but you must be feeling good. Uh, you're heading off on vacation, and I'm thrilled for you. I mean, I'm excited. I really am. It is always there's a, a small asterisk because anytime it's like road trips with a three and one and a half year old, you're like excited but cautious or uh, <laughs> thrilled but suspicious like there's gonna be <laughs> i'm sure i'll have stories when i get back but uh yeah we're we're thrilled we're gonna do a bit of a road trip and stay at some different airbnbs which is sort of sort of our jam that's kind, of, that's kind of like they do it. yeah but uh, i'll miss you guys we'll be we'll be back we'll be back refreshed you'll hear a different a new pep in ian's step as it were uh <laughs> and you'll just hear our, me all tired <laughs> yeah right <laughs> don't ever leave again uh <laughs> as we've been doing for the last little bit who even knows how long we've been doing this the very first segment I've, I've kind of just been filling in a uh, number of stories that caught my attention. So there's no real rhyme or reason. Just like, oh, this would be interesting to at least highlight briefly. And uh, I'm going to let you go ahead and choose which one you want to start with. Yeah, I found this one to be really interesting out of religion news. He says a surge of over 100 COVID-19 cases are linked to Evangelical Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry yeah. uh, out in California. It's a Pentecostal a school run by Bethel Mega Church of Bethel out in the city of Reading. And it's pretty unbelievable. They have uh, connected 123 cases to the school over the past two weeks. Bethel has come out and said most of them were linked to off-campus housing and uh, social interactions outside of school hours. Because interestingly, it seems like the school has taken a lot of the same precautions that other schools have. But it's just a uh, a reminder again uh, that it doesn't take much for for to have super spreading events of COVID-19. We saw that in the Rose Garden in Washington, D.C. at the White House. And so one of the epicenters, one of the spreader events seems to be Bethel uh, School of Supernatural Ministry. And I got to be I got to say this. There were a lot of jokes going around, which might be in poor taste with COVID, but uh, people saying, that Bethel is has does a lot with healing, and they're like, well, this is kind of ironic. <laughs> but oh, in reality, another small fact: my youth pastor, who married my wife and I, is a uh, is a is a teacher there out at the uh, Bethel school. Uh, but yeah, it is uh, prayers for the people there because that's a that's a big deal. It says they've actually traced 137 positive COVID 19 cases back to the students and staff since the start of early September when school started. So hopefully they get that under control. And again, it's a reminder we're living in the midst of a pandemic right now. See, I thought for sure the joke was going to be someone saying more like supernatural spreader, right? (laughs) It's a good joke. You did it. It's not a good joke. It does make me think, what's the Michael Scott quote where 
He says, like, I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious. I'm a little stitious, yeah. yes. <laughs> I think I think of that joke three times a week. I don't <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. You and me both. All right. So there's a couple of stories that would kind of fit in this category. Every once in a while, probably not as often as we should, I try to highlight some like international Christian news because mm-hmm. just again, I think I don't know why. I think it's so important for us to keep some of these things at the forefront of our mind. This headline out of uh, Christian Post, Chinese Christian kindergarten teacher imprisoned on suspicion of sharing faith with students. The headline kind of explains the whole thing. I would recommend go and read the whole story. There's like two or three others that I didn't put in the rundown in a similar type of category where like you just read it and you think that's so different from my reality here in the suburbs of Chicago. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it's just a reminder, like you just said, that uh, that's why I like it when we do stories that just aren't in Chicago or just in America, because you get reminded uh, that that there's a whole world out there where there is actual persecution going on. It doesn't mean our lives are always easy here, but where there's legitimate persecution, where there's legitimate danger for people who uh, are Christians. And and this is another one of those stories. And uh, so, yeah, keeping an eye on this one. But Again, like I said, it, it is a reminder that it's really difficult out there around the world for many uh, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, no kidding, man. Another one that we uh, – this headline has really a couple of things we've talked about on the show a lot. The uh, Out of NBC News, Facebook bans QAnon across its platforms. Did you see this one? I did, yeah, and my first thought was good. Uh, you and I have done stories about QAnon. It is – uh, QAnon is a uh, a very, an alt right wing conspiracy uh, theory uh, movement uh, that has some pretty dark conspiracy theories, and so um, you know there might I the counter argument to this is well we don't need censorship no matter how bad things are, but we have seen that as conspiracy theories and false false news gets gets into the social media stream that it's really hard to stop those narratives and i know facebook and twitter and instagram they've been trying to do a lot better job than what happened in 2016 with kind of uh, nipping these in the bud if you will and uh and so qAnon is uh, we've done stories on this it's it's a dangerous deal i would say because of the lengths that they go to conspiracy theories and uh, oftentimes they're very pro uh, President Trump and very pro uh, and and will put out there some kind of crazy stuff about people uh, on the other side of the aisle. And so I was OK with this. I know, again, some people probably the, the censorship flag goes up for them. But for me, uh, I think QAnon is bad enough that I'm good with them being sidelined on this. Well, let me uh, let me just read this last one. And rather than read the headline, I'm going to read the story first to kind of. Uh... I'll whet your appetite a little bit. So it begins by saying Bishop Eusebio Phelps, uh, Phelps, the pastor of New Faith Christian Church in the Atlanta suburb of Stockbridge, had a conversation with a waitress in a local Waffle House when he phoned in to place an order. Hannah Hill was the waitress who filled out his order, was elated when she received a $40 tip from the bishop. However, that number would increase to over $12,000 after Phelps began a Facebook campaign to raise just $1,000 for her. The pastor was inspired to do this after hearing Hill, who was pregnant at the time, share that she wanted to name her future son Samuel. Phelps lost his son named Samuel about seven years ago mm-hmm. and, after speaking to his wife, decided to raise funds for the waitress. The event was coming on the anniversary of their son passing away, he stated in an interview with Eleven Alive. Phelps had originally given her $40, the contents of his pocket, so that he could, uh, so that she could buy something nice for the baby. But after talking to his wife, the pair decided they wanted to try to give her more. So, with the goal of raising $1,000 for Hill in mind, 
Phelps turned to Facebook to ask his friends to donate if they could. Overnight, Phelps saw his friends were able to raise over $6,000. Phelps then went to the Waffle House to give her a check for the money, but it was her day off. Meanwhile, more people were donating to Hill and others following Phelps' journey to give Hill the money on a live stream uh, started to try to get in touch with her. Eventually, one person reached out to her roommate who woke Hill up. The two drove to the Waffle House, and by the time she got there, the dollar amount from donations had exceeded $12,000. According to a statement given to local outlet WXIA, uh, Hill said she didn't really attend church often, but had been praying more recently and may consider going back to church. She was living with her mother to make ends meet. She credits God for receiving the money. God knew he felt it on his heart, she stated. I, I just mm. thought that was it's a great story. one of those feel-good stories where in the midst of all the headlines and all the... I don't know, fighting and division. It's uh, it it does my heart good to see stories like this every once in a while, like a little bit of faith in humanity restored. How do you feel about that? Yeah, not only faith in humanity, but how often, including the story just five minutes ago, do we rip on social media and places like Facebook? But this is Facebook being used for real, real good because yeah. uh, that was the engine that they use. But, yeah, it's the same way that when we do good news network stories that we feel good because, yeah, you know what? We talk about so many dark things that to see the light and to see good people doing good things is always uh, it, it, it kind of restores your faith in humanity a little bit. Yeah, 100%. Coming up next, an interview that you're not going to want to miss. Pastor Rich Velotis is going to be joining us for the remainder of the hour, talking about his new book, The Deeply Formed Life. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And for the rest of the hour, I could not be more thrilled. We have on the show for the first time, but hopefully not the last, none other than the one and only Rich Velotis. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. It's our pleasure, man. I uh, I briefed you a little bit before we went live here, but I'd love for you to take a minute or two or five, if you want, and just introduce yourself to our Common Good audience. Yeah, I happen to be the son of Richard Sr. and Nicolas Avillodas. Uh, my parents are from Puerto Rico. I am the husband to my wife, Rosie, of 14 years and the father to Nathan, six years old, and Karis, 11 years old. Mm. So uh, at this time, I am a pastor and a principal of a homeschool <laughs> academy and uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and live in Queens. And our church is in a place where National Geographic has called the most diverse zip code in the world. So uh, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, Rich, I, I'm going to try not to bring up the fact that you and I are both long-suffering Mets fans, so we figured that out about each other, but uh, good job, good job. as you said, uh, your church, New Life Fellowship in Queens, I was just reading kind of your bio, and I was amazed to see, and you were just talking about the diversity of the area, that it repre- has 75 countries represented in it. That That is mind-boggling to me. What's it like to lead a church with that much diversity and, and that many different countries represented? It is beautifully painful. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's beautiful in, in so many ways. You know, there's 75 nations represented in our church. Uh, at the nearby hospital, there's 123 languages that are spoken to wow. give you a sense as to the diversity. You know, 50, 50% of Queens is foreign born. In our own borough, we have 2.2 million people. So it's, it's a large, large, large uh, place. Uh, but it's it's beautiful in the sense that uh, we get to see the diversity of the body of Christ every mm-hmm. week when we gather, especially when we were gathering in person. Uh, we get to see facets of 
the character of God. We get to see facets of how people approach scripture. Uh, and if you hear noise in the background, I'm in Queens. So you have motorcycles <laughs> and cars honking and all that there. Uh, so all that, it's beautiful. The tensions are because people are coming from so many different places in life, not just ethnically, but, uh, you know, sociopolitically and um, generationally and in terms of education and such, uh, people are coming with many different opinions about many different things. And so trying to create spaces and find spaces where unity can be found in, in the midst of incredible diversity is uh, very challenging and it's a very holy task as well. Mm -hmm. Rich, you wrote a book that I've been looking forward to for a long time called The Deeply Formed Life. And we're going to spend a lot of time this hour talking about that. But I also know that since the murder of George Floyd and others that you've you've been you've been given a number of opportunities and platforms to speak about things that Brian and I have been trying to do our best to talk about, but maybe even more importantly, to shut our mouths. And, and you know, because he and I are both white male pastors in the suburbs wanting to really like lament and listen. But, you know, we've got some pushback if we address things like systemic racism or white privilege. Like as a pastor, how have you been navigating some of the some of the unrest, I guess, in that regard, in light of what you were just sharing about like the diversity of your community? Yeah, I have found that in navigating racial tensions in our own community, I've had to repeatedly uh, define and re redefine two words. Uh, the gospel and race uh, mm -hmm. or racism. Uh, and so I, I find in every sermon I'm talking about the gospel, but in a way that is large enough, robust enough to uh, engage some of the realities of uh, racial injustice and racial hostility. And the same thing as it pertains to, to race and racism. I, I consistently, whether in preaching and articles and uh, social media posts, have to repeatedly say, when we say racism, this is what we mean, and this is what we don't necessarily mean. That there are many mm. facets and layers, and uh, you know, uh, you know, various layers to address race. And so we have to talk about it at least on three layers: individually, interpersonally, institutionally. And so I have found that much of the work is on defining and redefining terms, and then asking what might God have to say to this particular issue in our day, but. Um, so much of it is trying to get people on the same page in terms of how we're understanding particular terms. Mm. Yeah. And Rich, uh, I know we're all dealing with the coronavirus pandemic right now, all of us as pastors and just people. Uh, but if I remember right, where you live was like ground zero. It was the epicenter at the worst outbreak in New York City. Uh, what was that like just as a resident of Queens, but also as a pastor uh, in that borough? Yeah, as a resident, I, I live two miles from Elmhurst Hospital, which was featured prominently on the news. Our church is one mile away from Elmhurst Hospital. It was very eerie because on a regular basis, we heard the sounds of the uh, sirens blaring through the street at all times of the day and night. Uh, and it became so consistent, just the sirens from the ambulance and such, uh, that it, the, the, the sound just faded in the background because we heard it so often. Uh, and so it was very eerie. Um, folks from our congregation, uh, you know, had COVID. Um, thankfully, no one from our congregation died from it. However, very sadly, relatives of congregants died. So there are at least about uh, seven or eight that I can think of, of brothers or parents or uncles uh, that passed away. So it was very eerie. Um, 
walking down the street, lots of fear, lots of anxiety. And, you know, here we are some seven months later, uh, lots of change in our city. We're kind of figuring out, yeah, we can, I guess, navigate through this in a new way. Uh, but when it first hit, uh, it was uh, frightening and very eerie for sure. My goodness. All right. So, Rich, I mentioned this at the beginning. Uh, we're going to talk about your book and we only have a couple of minutes left in this segment. So I'd love for you to take the remaining two or so minutes that we have and kind of paint for us a 30,000 foot view of the book, why you wrote it, and maybe maybe tease out a little bit some of the things we're going to talk about. Yeah, I wrote the book, The Deeply Formed Life, because out of pastoral concern, in the same way that uh, Eugene Peterson wrote the message translation out of pastoral concern for his community, where he translated, I believe he started off with the book of Galatians, trying to help his congregation understand what Paul was saying to that church. And one thing led to the next, where he was uh, paraphrasing entire other epistles. And next thing you know, we have the message translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, prim- I wrote it primarily out of pastoral concern because the five values that I touch in the book are actually the five values of our congregation. And those values are contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, uh, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. At New Life, we have, we call them the five M, so we don't use that language. We call it monastic, multiracial, emotional health, uh, marriage to Christ, and missional. But those were the five values that uh, really make up our congregation. These are the values that have significantly impacted my life. And what I wanted to do in writing this, it's it's quite an ambitious project, but I was trying to uh, broaden our vision of spiritual formation. Mm. Uh, When we think about spiritual formation, uh, we think about some of the classics that have significantly impacted my life, uh, the celebration of discipline by Richard mm-hmm. Foster, anything mm-hmm. from Dallas Willard, things along those lines. What I wanted to do was do my best to incorporate the traditional uh, individual kind of practices of silence, prayer, solitude, etc., but then broaden it out to say, how do we formationally engage matters of race, formationally engage matters of sexuality and justice? That's essentially what I'm trying to do with this book. That's brilliant. That voice you're hearing, by the way, is Pastor Rich Velotis, author of the new book, The Deeply Formed Life. He's going to stick around for two more segments as we take a deeper dive into that book. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we're joined by Pastor Rich Velotis, author of the new book, The Deeply Formed Life. And he did a phenomenal job offering us what we call in the biz, a bit of a segue, a bit of a tease, and uh, gave us a 30,000-foot perspective on the book. But what, I, what I'd love to do now, especially in this cultural moment that we're you know, oddly all experiencing to one degree or another, I'd love for you to drill down deeper. Why, why are spiritual practices and rhythms so important, and even, maybe even more so right now amidst a pandemic, amidst everything that we're facing? Why, why is this so significant? Yeah, when I think about spiritual practices, spiritual practices for me is about the intentional reordering of our lives mm. uh, in a way that um, you know helps us to live from the center of God's love as as witnesses to Christ and His kingdom. But it's really that phrase: it's the intentional reordering of our lives. And as many people have experienced in this pandemic, and even before it, and when this pandemic is over, uh, our lives fall into great disorder very easily uh, with the pace that we live, with the antagonisms that 
uh, come through our television and through our social media uh, accounts and such. Uh, it's very easy to live lives that are disordered, uh, disoriented. So these spiritual practices, uh, and when I talk about in my book, spiritual practices for all of these areas, whether we're talking about race or prayer or justice or sexuality or our own emotional health, uh, these practices, yeah, they're, they're about intentionally reordering our lives so that we are following Christ, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and expressing that in our very lives, our bodies across the board. So this is moving beyond just Christianity in our head. This is hmm. embodying Christianity on a day-to-day basis uh, as, as it pertains to some of the more challenging issues of our day. In the book, you talk about the importance of slowing down, and, and that's so hard, right, in our culture right now, kind of slowing down and disconnecting. Two questions. Could you talk to the listener out there who's like, I just can't slow down. It's just not possible. What's the effect going to be in their life as they live at that hectic pace? And then secondly, what would be a practical, say, a first step to help somebody just start this process of slowing down? You know, when I hear people say I can't slow down, first of all, uh, I live in the city that never sleeps. uh, (laughs) I understand this uh, deeply. Uh, I've heard people say from time to time, you know, I'll stop, you know, I'll stop when uh, when I see God face to face, you know, and Mm -hmm. my retort is typically you're going to see him very quickly. if That's the case here, (laughs) Uh, because the pace that we live is often uh, does violence against our souls. And I see it every day. I pastor a congregation where people are uh, have way too much to do, very little time, uh, jobs that are incredibly demanding, uh, children to raise, money to make. And so uh, I, I, I know this and I write from the context of people running into subways. Uh, I, run in, I write in a context where we, we do have significant mission uh, in our church. We have a community development corporation in which we are serving thousands of people in our community. There's a lot that's happening. But uh, I do say, unless we create and establish intentional rhythms, uh, we're not going to have a life with God to sustain the work we're doing for God. In terms of just the, the, uh, the practice that I typically go to, it's really the one that has most profoundly impacted me in this area over the past 12 years. And it is Sabbath keeping. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Sabbath for me is about uh, a 24 hour period, not a metaphorical or spiritual 24 hour period, like a literal 24 hour period without any have tos, without Mm -hmm. any shoulds, without any anxiety uh, that over time is to result in deep rest and renewal. And it is in that 24-hour period where I am giving attention to things like delighting. What are the things that give me life? What are the things that uh, produce joy in me? Uh, Contemplating God. What does my life look like in prayer and deepening in the scriptures? And over time, a 24-hour period, you doing this uh, over time will really um, not just energize you and recenter you. What will also happen is the idols of our souls will also get exercised. And this is what I mean by that. It's often the case that people say, yeah, I want to rest and keep Sabbath because that'll help me work more effectively. And while that is true, the goal of keeping Sabbath is not to uh, be more efficient. The goal of keeping Sabbath is to resist the idol of efficiency. Mm-hmm. And uh, because our lives are more than what we produce, we are more than what we accomplish. 
we are who we are by, you know, we, we are uh, the, the, the core identity of who we are is in the love of God. Mm-hmm. And the Sabbath is one of the key points of formation that remind us of that. Yeah, Rich, you, you mentioned this idea of anxiety, and we're actually in the middle of a series at our church right now on on mental health, and we, we covered anxiety, depression. I was talking about suicidal ideation last week, which was helpful, but incredibly heavy. And I'm finding that a, a lot of people are feeling unbelievably heightened levels of anxiety and fear right now. And in a lot of ways, I'd say for good reason. In the book, you talk about some some questions that we can ask ourselves in order to become more aware of that. And you also reference praying the Lord's Prayer every day. Can, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, in terms of uh, navigating anxiety, I have found in my own life, 2020 has produced more anxiety this year in me than mm. in many of the years prior combined as a pastor. Uh, the anxiety of, of meeting people's needs, the anxiety of, of holding on to the multiple tensions within our congregation. Should we open? Should we stay closed? Should we right. wear masks? Should we not? Um, you know, across the board, the political hostility that has uh, not just crept into our church, but is, I mean, fully alive in our church mm-hmm. uh, has produced lots of anxiety. So for me, wh- when I think about um, the anxiety that surfaces in my life, I often think about this, uh, a framework that I've created in the book uh, of five very simple questions. Uh, and it actually, it helps me whenever there's anxiety, when anxiety has become a disproportionate reaction to something that I'm experiencing. And I want to tell you, uh, this is very fresh in my mind because I found myself reflecting and journaling on this just last night because of a few emails that I received uh, that produced anxiety in me. But here's a very simple uh, framework that I use whenever I find myself reacting with anxiety. What happened? That's the first question. The second question is, what am I feeling? The third question is, what is the story I'm telling myself? The fourth question is, what does the gospel say? Mm-hmm. And the last question is, what might be the counter instinctual act that I need to give myself to? And so whenever anxiety surfaces, you know, what happened? What, you know, what's going on here? What am I feeling? And then that third question, it's often triggering something from the past that's unresolved, yeah. a wound that hasn't been healed yet that's resurfacing. Most of the anxiety that comes up today in our lives is not just something that just happened today. It's triggering something that's happened in the past. Mm-hmm. And so what does the gospel say? And what's the counter instinctual act that I have to give myself to? That's been a framework that I've um, given myself to, to help me navigate anxiety. Mm. Uh, Rich, I, I'm wondering how you would answer for people who just go, I, I get this sometime as a pastor, uh, this question, just pastor, I don't know how to pray. I don't even know where to start. And so you talk about prayer in the book. Some, how would you answer that question to somebody who just goes, I don't really even know where to start when it comes to prayer? Yeah. Two things I would say. The first thing I would say is uh, recognize that we are always beginners in prayer. And so whether you've been uh, praying for 20 years or 40 years or whether you just entered into a relationship with God. We're always beginning with God in prayer. We're always beginners. And so for me, prayer is about sharing presence with God. And uh, it's, it's often the case that much of our prayers are marked by verbosity. There's a lot of talking, but mm. prayer is often about just sharing our, our life. And so what I often recommend is set a timer on your phone, uh, sit with your arms open, uh, have the name Jesus or a phrase like Holy Spirit or the peace of God on your lips and then 
and just repeatedly say that whenever you find yourself getting distracted, just hold on to that phrase and open yourself up to God and recognize, number one, that prayer is not should not be marked by verbosity. It's about sharing our presence with God. And the second thing I would say uh, is uh, Jesus has given us the prayers to pray. And when his disciples said, teach us to pray, he gave them the Lord's prayer. Mm -hmm. And I pray that, as you alluded to earlier, every single day, very slowly and contemplatively. And sometimes I stop at one particular word, but that's been a, a prayer that I go to often multiple times a day, especially when I get to the part of forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Mm. I spend a lot of time with that. But I think the words of Jesus are sufficient enough to help us grow in our yeah. life with God in prayer. That's so good. Our guest today is Pastor Rich Velotis, author of the new book, The Deeply Formed Life. And he's going to stick around for just one more segment as we ask him a little bit more about his book, Racial Reconciliation, and maybe a way forward. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Our guest all this hour has been Rich Velotis, pastor and author of The Deeply Formed Life. Just to say it out loud, Rich, by the way, I'm so grateful for, for you and for your voice. If you're not following Rich on Facebook and or Twitter, I, I highly recommend it. Your words have been an encouragement to me and to my family and our church. So just you know, to say it out loud, personally, I'm, I'm very grateful for you and for your work. And, and one of the things that you mentioned in the book, and we touched on this in the first segment, is that you actually kind of lay out a model for racial justice and reconciliation that I, I think people would find really helpful. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, Ian, thanks for the kind words. When I think about uh, racial justice and reconciliation, I mentioned earlier that we have to think about it on three different levels, individually, interpersonally, and institutionally. If I could uh, step out a little further and provide another framework, I think because race is such a multi-layered issue and incredibly complex, comprehensive, uh, we need a framework that at least provides us with handles to address the various facets of it. And so when I think about moving the conversation forward within my congregation, I like to think about race on at least six levels. And I'll just mm. uh, allude to them here and then hone in on the one that I spend more time on in the book. I think race needs to be talked about theologically, historically, sociologically, ecclesiologically, uh, politically, and what I mean by that is in terms of policy, and then lastly, formationally. Uh, I could spend a lot of time on each of those, and in the book, I cover uh, some of those there, but I think the last part is what I spend most time in a deeply formed life. What kind of formation in Christ do we need to engage this conversation on multiple levels. And uh, it requires a life that is uh, introspective. It requires a life that's honest. It requires a life that, um, that recognizes our blind spots. And so in the book, you know, each, each theme that I cover has kind of a theological chapter or a big picture chapter. And then the second chapter has to deal with the various practices to help us live into this. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that I lead our congregation in whenever I talk about matters of race is to help people uh, think about the ways they've been formed, uh, in particular by their families of origin. Uh, uh, our families of origin, our, our parents, our grandparents, whoever raised us, uh, had the most impact in terms of our formation than anyone else. 
And uh, there have been messages that have been consciously spoken or unconsciously interpreted in the families that we grew up around or grew up in as it pertains to people who don't look like us. And so uh, I often help people to navigate the messages. And this comes out of good family systems theory in terms of how, the, how people use the genogram. Um, but I, I help people to think about how did your family consciously or unconsciously, what are the messages they gave you about black people, about Hispanic people, Asian people, white people, Middle Eastern people, Native American people. And those are, that's one of the practices that I, I talk about in the deeply formed life, because uh, unless we're really nailing and uh, being honest about the messages we've inherited, we're going to have a hard time then moving the conversation forward, being honest with ourselves, and then thinking in terms of how do these messages impact the way I think about how society should be ordered? Um, so in terms of the framework is massive, but that just gives you a little sense as to how I'm, I think through this massive conversation. That's awesome. Uh, so I, here's a line from your book that is really convicting. I'd love for you to explain it. You say, uh, we are formed to believe that God is only in the places and with people that mirror our belief systems. I read that and was just kind of Okay, I got to sit and think on that one. Can you talk us through and explain that thought process that you had there? Yeah, we often live with, and I include myself here, with this theological confirmation bias uh, in which uh, as long as you believe as I do, uh, God is with you. Uh, but if you don't see the world in the way that I see it, certainly God is not blessing the work that you're doing. And of course, I mean, um, uh, you know, we, we have various visions of how the world uh, should be should unfold and what flourishing looks like in our world. Uh, but what happens is, and I find it to be true in my own life, uh, it's often challenging for me to sit and hear the perspectives of other people and then make a conclusion, might God be in this? Uh, and so in our polarized society, theological polarization, political polarization, racial polarization, uh, we have no time to actually sit and listen with someone who might differ from us. And so from the, from the get-go, we're already saying, of course, God can't be with you. Of course, mm -hmm. God can't be uh, confirming or putting his stamp of approval on what you believe. So I, we live with this theological confirmation bias, and I'm not alone in it. And um it's very challenging. So the, the work of actually listening to people and discerning God, why do people believe what they believe? And God might surprise us in terms of uh, people seeing the world differently than us might not be a judgment on them. It might be a judgment on us because maybe we've mm. missed it. So, um, but that theological confirmation bias is how I like to think about uh, that statement there. That's incredibly helpful. One, one of the things that I often hear as a criticism towards the contemplative or the monastic is sort of like, well, we can't all go live in the woods or on mountaintops. There's actual like mission that needs to happen. There's things that need to be done. You know, and I'm, I'm a part of a church that is, you know, historically for 30 years been, been very mission minded and started church planning networks. And you, you have a statement that you unpack about deeply formed mission is first about who we're becoming before what we are doing. And that, I mean, that just like resonated with my soul. Could you unpack a little bit more about not only why you believe that, but why that's so critical for us to understand that? Yeah, I, I believe that our mission fundamentally is not about the good deeds that we do. For Christians, our primary mission is to be Jesus Christ for another person. 
and to model something of Jesus Christ, his love, his mercy, his justice, his, his compassion. When people see us, uh, more than just seeing our good deeds, as good as these deeds are, uh, they, they need to see something of Christ. Uh, and so the, the contemplative dimension of life and, and, and Christianity is one in which we are trying to immerse ourselves in God, in prayer, in reflection, so that what oozes out of us is exactly what the world needs, uh, mm-hmm. God. Uh, Robert Mahalan, uh, who is a writer on spiritual formation, uh, he came to our church a couple of years ago. He passed away a couple of years ago. But before he died, he came and led a leadership conference for us. And he said one line that has stayed with me for a number of years. He said, there's two ways of being in the world. We can be in the world for God or we can be in God for the world. And there's mm-hmm. a very big difference. There are a lot of people who are in the world for God. And what that means is very simply, we have the various banner issues, the various issues that we believe God is concerned about. And we wave that banner in such a way that we create hierarchies or create, uh, you know, bounded set kind of thinking in which some people are in and who's out based on the banner that we're waving. And Mm -hmm. so the challenge is you can be in the world for God without God. The challenge, the invitation is to be in God for the world. And that's what deeply formed mission is. It begins with my life being saturated with God in prayer and reflection in scripture, in silence, in solitude. And then out of that place saying, what does it mean to be the healing presence of Jesus in my home, in my workplace, at the school, in the neighborhood? But it begins with a recognition that I can do plenty of things for God without God. But God, what God is calling me to is a life where I'm abiding in God and then expressing that to the world around me. It's a, it's a huge mm, difference. Absolutely. Well, Rich, uh, we are super grateful that you've spent so much time with us. Again, Rich's book is The Deeply Formed Life. Before we let you go, why don't you give everybody a website, social media, where if people are like, man, I want to hear more from this guy, where can they find your book and where can they find you online? Yeah, if you went to richvolotis.com, that's Volotis, V-I-L-L-O-D-A-S, richvolotis.com. Uh, you'll see some of the things that I put out related to the book and um, other stuff that I've done. Also, if you just want to get here about our church, just newlife.nyc. Uh, you can catch me there. And then lastly, I'm usually on like Twitter or Instagram at uh, Rich Velotis. And um, I usually test out a lot of my ideas on Twitter <laughs> about what's going to work in a sermon or not. Uh, so uh, you'll find a lot of reflections on theology and a lot, whole lot of other things like the Mets. There you go. Uh, so if you're, if you're looking for an eclectic account to follow, um, <laughs> check that out. I love it. Our guest today has been Pastor Rich Velotas, author of the new book, The Deeply Formed Life. I cannot recommend enough that you all pick it up and go ahead and buy two and give one to a friend. Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. This has been great. Appreciate it, man. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Christians and politics, how to become indistractable, and how do CEOs actually feel about working from home. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and I know I mention it every single day, but my goodness, if you missed our interview with Rich Velotis that just happened in the first hour, I cannot recommend enough. 
go back to the podcast, listen to it, and then go buy his book yes. and then buy it for some friends. He's a great follow on social media. Either way, really, really grateful for him and his wisdom and his leadership. And uh, if you missed it, I, I think you'll be really, really blessed and challenged by it. Mm-hmm. I do also want to mention we're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk and 1160hope.com slash the common good. We got some good discussion going on the Facebook page now, too. There's, It's interesting. Sometimes, like, stories or articles or angles that I think are going to get a bunch of traction, it's just like crickets. And then other times, it's like we post an article about a penguin finding his way home, and it gets 400 comments. And you're like, 100% true. <laughs> <"What?"> <laughs> it's not always the case. Certainly, sometimes the ones that are you know, a little more uh, substantive or controversial, do get good engagement. But that's a great place to engage. Leave a comment, send us a message if you like. And uh, speaking of things that will probably get comments, why don't we talk a little politics, Brian? There's a, a couple articles I want to reference. This main one out of Christianity Today. If you've not read it, by the way, it's uh, it's very, very good. Evangelical witness is compromised. We need repentance and renewal. What's going on? Yeah, Christianity Today diving in again here. It says, Polarization is like a powerful magnets placed throughout our ideological spectrum. They pull us apart and clump us into tribes. We have a hard time breaking away from the magnetic security of being with like-minded people who reinforce our like-mindedness. Efforts to move toward others must labor against their pull. For this reason, the National Association of Evangelicals and World Relief have uh, published a short sign-on statement of repentance, renewal, and resolve. It is based on the 2004 uh, National Association of Evangelicals document for the health of the nation, an evangelical call to civic responsibility, and a guide for public leadership. The statement focuses on eight broad issues of moral importance that are rooted in biblical convictions. They are protecting religious freedom, safeguarding the sanctity of life, strengthening families, seeking justice for the poor and the vulnerable, preserving human rights, pursuing racial justice, restraining violence, and caring for God's creation. Let me pause there for a sec. That that list of eight is really interesting because hmm. uh, I think a lot of times when we talk about articles, you start to realize, okay, when we talk about this subject, it's going to uh, it's going to land well with that segment of the population. When we talk about this subject, it's going to land with that segment, kind of the whole polarization thing and the tribal thing. Uh, I feel like that list of eight kind of cuts across them, right? The whole. I think that's the point. It yeah. is. But I think that's what makes this really interesting and really worth considering because uh, some people I could see reading that list going, yes, yes, no, no, yes, no. <laughs> and mm-hmm. their point is, no, we as evangelicals, we as Christians, uh, we need to be concerned with all of these things, and and our witness is uh, is impacted by all of these things on this list. Well, and that's part of what it says here. The, these biblical values unite us across denominational, geographic, ethnic, and partisan divides. Too many, especially young people and people of color, have been alienated by the evangelical Christianity that they have seen presented in public in recent years, and they may rightly wonder if there is a home for them in evangelicalism. That's something that I hear a lot from young people, not even just young people, to be honest. I do feel like it's it's going to be a little evergreen and hip to like, ah, what are we doing to engage the young people? Like, I think that's certainly part of it. I think a lot of people are feeling uh, a little, uh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Nomadic, I guess, Mm -hmm. in their political and theological leanings. Like I, I used to feel really at home sort of in this camp or this denomination, but I I don't anymore. And a lot of that I think comes from part of uh, how these, how, how it's depicted in this, in the social square, which, 
part of me wants to rail against like, well, just because something's depicted that way doesn't mean it's actually true. But that that's an important part of it, though. That's an important aspect, I think, for people finding some kind of faith home, to be honest. Yeah, they go on to say we have an opportunity. And I love the use of the word opportunity to reaffirm with conviction and clarity that our tradition is rooted in fidelity to Christ and his kingdom values. And in rallying around these principles, uh, this is written by Walter Kim, who's the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He says, in rallying around these principles, we will also show those outside the church that evangelicalism is not defined by politics. Rather, Mm -hmm. we are motivated by love for God and love for our neighbor. That is such a huge statement that I think a lot of us would agree with, uh, but it's easier said than done. He's gone. He's Walter Kim is trying to say, listen, evangelicalism is defined. It's motivated uh, by the great commandments, love of God, love of neighbor. Uh, but instead, those outside the church see it as defined as a political arm, as a, a by politics and a specific politics. And he's calling evangelicalism back to our roots and saying, no, no, our deepest calling is to love God and love our neighbor. Uh, and that this needs to not only be our motivator, but it needs to be what people see when they look at us. They need yeah. to go, oh, man, something different over there. And I think he's writing this because he's not seeing this. And he closes out this uh, article. He says, we invite Christians to join us in affirming this statement. Now is the time to promote faithful, evangelical, civic engagement and a biblically balanced agenda as we seek to commit to the biblical call to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Uh, I think this is so timely, and I know it's written because (laughs) purposefully uh, at election time. Uh, But man, I read this and I get excited. I'm like, okay, this is the leadership we need. These are the people, this is the voice we need. This is what we need to be rallying behind. Uh, Again, easier said than done, but I, I applaud them for writing this and putting this statement out there. Yeah, I like the first paragraph of the actual statement. It says, as evangelical Christians, we're called by Jesus to love God and to love our neighbor. As citizens who follow this call, we must engage, listen to this list, with humility, civility, intellectual rigor, and honesty in the complex and contentious social issues that face our nation. We invite all followers of Jesus, whether Democrats, Republicans, or independents, which they're implying then you can be a follower of Jesus and be any of those things to join us in seeking the health of the nation for the good of all people. And the categories they give, I think are great repent, renew and resolve. And then sort of their sub points there. I would encourage you go and go and read the whole thing. Like we're the jumping off point for us was this Christianity today article, mm-hmm. but go and read the actual statement itself. I'm, I'm with you. I I'm not typically inspired and moved by statements usually it's more like yeah i agree or disagree with that there's a it's much more of a sort of a black and white intellectual like decision i read this and was like oh, i'm like moved by this and i don't know if that's because everything's been so contentious that to read something like this is why we're always talking about you know groups like the and campaign there's something about it that i think oh yeah that feels right we yeah. we need more of that you know yeah, and it, you you uh, juxtapose this against another article that you send to me from five eighty three five thirty eight dot com that's simply titled "How Hatred Came to Dominate American Politics," and yeah. that's why this is so important because we all get this. We're living in a day and age where literally the the right and the left just they don't just disagree, uh, but they see each other as the enemy increasingly, and they see mm-hmm. how this article says hatred, and so. This is an opportunity for the evangelical world, for the Christ followers to come in and go, wait, no, no, there's a different way to do this. 
And we are following the way of Jesus and not the way of our cultural politics right now. And we know that the reason they have to write a statement is because all too often that's not what the evangelical um, what the evangelical Christians have been known for in our culture. Right. And so I do think in this in this time of hatred and division, there's such an opportunity for us to shine a light uh, and to just look different. It's a real opportunity that I pray we don't miss. Yeah, that other article that you referenced to, they uh, they present a phrase that political scientists are using called negative partisanship. Like partisanship isn't new, but the levels of of like vitriol that we've seen now on on both sides and from both sides, they're saying. Um, it's not just bad for democracy that it's potentially destructive. And when you see that kind of animosity, which I'm sure everyone sees to some degree, uh, that can that can lead will likely lead if something doesn't change to some pretty dangerous places. So either way, read them all. I think it's all really helpful. Good. It's on our Facebook page. I highly encourage you to check that out. Coming up next, uh, how to be indistractable. It says stop blaming technology. Distraction starts within. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad that you're here. We don't say it nearly enough, but it's true every time. I was just having this conversation yesterday, by the way. Like, it was somebody that I hadn't talked to in a while, and he was like, dude, you have a radio show. <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, we've been doing it for a while now. I was like, no, but that's that's an incredible thing. And I was like, that is an incredible thing. Like, that's, that was a good reminder for me. Like, sometimes, you know. It can it can still feel like a grind at times because he got a I was reading, too, about another pastor that I respect saying he limits his news to 20 minutes a day. That's it. And then shuts it all down. And I was like, oh, gosh, that wow. <laughs> that sounds lovely, uh-huh. but also like impossible to prepare, you know, a radio show taking in probably only 20 minutes. But I, I, I kind of want to juxtapose that to what we're actually going to talk about, because I found this really interesting. People. Everyone seems to be talking about how distracted they are just in general and, you know, extrovert, introvert, whatever generation you come from, whatever your background, like distraction, it feels like is at an all time high. And this article out of psych.co is entitled how to be indistractable. Stop blaming technology. Distraction starts within manage your inner triggers to enjoy greater focus and a fuller life. I mean, just for starters, who doesn't want? that right like who couldn't use yeah. a little bit more focus in the i haven't heard anybody in the last six or seven months say right. never been more focused <laughs> never <laughs> like, i'm locked I'm in totally I'm locked. I'm, yeah like I'm, I'm at my a game right now like i just feel like we all probably are and people probably you know have fallen into some rhythms and stuff but uh, why don't you get us a bit into this article from psych.co yeah the article starts with uh, a story she tells that is all too relatable where she her daughter and her are playing a game and she starts, says to her daughter, oh, just a minute, I need to take care of something on her phone. And by the time she looks up from her phone, her daughter just left, just walked mm-hmm. away. Uh, and a lot of us can can relate to that. And so it goes on to say, if you're a parent in the 21st century, I bet you've experienced your own version of that. But it's not just parents. It's all of us in our interactions with each other. Distraction has become the norm. We're blessed with pocket-sized supercomputers that connect us to anyone and everyone and a buffet of information. But there's a dark side. Those same gadgets distract us often at the moments that matter most. Of course, Mm. smartphones didn't invent distraction. They're just the latest culprit. Uh, Before that, we blamed television. And before that, it was the telephone or comic books or the radio. Go back more than 2000 years and Socrates was even criticizing the written word for causing, quote, forgetfulness 
uh, in the learner's souls. Still, our present feels different with the sources of distraction seeming greater in number and more ubiquitous. One study in 2014 showed that when two people are talking, the mere presence of a smartphone resting on a table is enough to change the character of their conversation. And that's a team example. To see the seriousness of the problem, look at the sobering statistics on distracted driving in the United States. Uh, And so it goes on later to say, this is when the whole story with her daughter, it says, that's when I started a five-year journey to understand distraction, its causes and its cures. I discovered a great deal that I found surprising and counterintuitive, and I developed methods to deal with my distraction that actually worked. And it didn't involve me trying to turn back time and operate a a flip phone. I realized that distraction often begins from within, not without, and found that the fix came from identifying and managing the psychological discomfort that leads us off track. I think this is fascinating because I say it and, and, and others will say it all the time. Why are you distracted? And we blame it on the phone or we blame it on the noise around us, the TV or something. And this, uh, this person's uh, hypothesis is, no, those are just the tools. The distraction's coming from within you. If you didn't have a phone, something else would distract you in a different way. Uh, and so that does give you some hope saying, okay, there, there might be a solution to this beyond opening my window and throwing my phone out uh, that, that can get at it. So I think this is pretty interesting. Yeah, I like, I like what she says here. You won't always be able to control how you feel, but you can learn to control how you react to the way you feel. A trigger that once sent you to Twitter can perhaps lead instead to 10 deep breaths. Distraction, in other words, is a symptom of a problem, not the problem itself. Those deeper and systemic reasons, such as an inability to cope with fear, anxiety, or stress, deserve our concern because it's only when we start to address them that we can make real progress. I think that's a really key insight. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a much longer article that gives some some examples about you know what to actually do. It talks about uh, self exploring, uh, talks about reframing, talks about identifying your priorities. A lot a lot of it for some people will be uh, a little like one on one, I guess, with regards to how we like organize our day and our thoughts. But I think it's all the more true and needed now because you even think about spaces, right? Like we used to have oh that was my coffee shop I went to, and then I had a job I drove to, and then I had sabbath over here and recreation over here now now all of that right your your church and your work and date night that's all happening in your house for a lot of us and there's there's no break from that which is probably all all the more likely than that will be distracted by things because we're you know we're, we're familiar in this space and i think identifying distraction not as the issue itself but a symptom of deeper issues is actually a really smart way to go after it yeah absolutely and I had this thought just the other day. I was doing work. I had my laptop open and I realized all of a sudden it hit me that within like the span of 15 minutes, I was working, working, working. And like within the span of 15 minutes, I think three separate occasions I I clicked on Twitter for no reason, mm-hmm. <laughs> like right, except just, right. just to get my mind, you know, to just something mindless. And I was like, man, that was excessive for one. Uh, and I love right here later on, she's going to talk about what what are solutions? And she purposefully, the author purposely doesn't start with solutions, instead starts with what is going on internally, but then basically says, once we get uh, kind of what are our values and what triggers us, then we can work backwards. And basically said, one of the most important things we can do is to plan ahead uh, yeah. for thought, it says, is the antidote to impulsivity. You can use a, quote, pre-commitment to a particular course of action to exert a powerful influence on your future behavior. If you pre-commit, you make a choice in advance and pledge to stick to it. Uh, and, and I think you've touched on this more than, uh, more than one occasion. Like 
the people who say, uh, I'm going to plan ahead, like the 20 minutes, like you just said before, where I'm going to consume my news and then I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to have Twitter up. I'm not going to have this. Uh, I'm going to plan ahead uh, when I'm going to be on social media. Or if I'm sermon prepping, I'm only going to check my email at lunchtime and then I'm going to turn it off. It's not going to be just constantly up there. I think this intentionality, or as he put it, forethought being the antidote to impulsivity, that's what gets me so often. It's just the impulsive, like, hmm, I wonder if anybody posted anything in the last two minutes. (laughs) I wonder if anybody liked anything in the last two minutes. And all of a sudden, you're just wasting time and you're just uh, you're just distracted. And and I think, yeah, I I think that that for me, that um, planning ahead is such an important one that I don't do. Yeah, there's a book they reference here, the uh, the distracted mind, ancient brains in a high tech world, and the point there they're making is that there's a difference between a break and a distraction. That breaks can actually help reduce mental fatigue and boost brain function. Like it's important. That's another thing that I'm not good at. That's the that's the weird blend here. I I am I don't know if I'm predisposed or if it's a learned behavior, but I'm like I'll just keep powering through. Mm. And people that I, I think are much smarter and wiser will be like, Hey, why don't you take a ten minute walk? I'm like, no time. I gotta, I gotta finish this assignment or I gotta answer this email. I'm like, you might actually be better at the parts that you're frustrated you're not doing right now if you actually get up and it's the it's the same principle behind Sabbath, right? Like a lot of times people don't take days off or they don't vacation because there's too much to do. And if I step away from it, it won't get done. And I think people that are better at those things have found like, you know what? When I'm actually diligent about Sabbath. I actually find that I'm more effective. I'm more efficient in my work, not to mention I feel a deeper connection in my soul to God and to others, the people that I love. Like it's almost as if God knew what he was talking about. It wasn't just some arbitrary legalistic rule. It's like, no, if you if you go seven days a week all the time, not only do you like physically wear out, mm-hmm. but like it starts to do something to your soul. Either way, this isn't written from a Christian perspective necessarily, no. but there's a there's a ton of good points, a ton of links, a ton of references to other books and podcasts and all that. We didn't get into really mostly any of it, but uh, I would highly recommend you check it out, especially in an age where I think a lot of us are feeling, you know, just especially distracted. Yeah. Coming up next, uh, something interesting that I found in the science world regarding, well, how we work and learn the best. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. There's some days that we're celebrating today. Oh, I'm ready. Uh, and they always there's always at least one that strikes me as so strange. Let me start with that one. National Coffee with a Cop Day. Coffee with a cop day. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you're supposed to like buy coffee for a police officer or you're supposed to have it with them. It's also National Pumpkin Seed Day, National Walk to School Day, National Inner Beauty Day, and National Frappe Day, which rhymes. That's fun. <laughs> I don't know if any of those strike you as uh, worthy of celebration, Brian. Is there any that speak to your soul there? We celebrated National Walk to School Day today when I told my kids to walk to their remote learning in their room. (laughs) Mm, That walk has gotten less, hasn't it? Downers is still a bit of a hybrid, right? Uh, Not yet. Uh, Middle of October. So we're like two weeks away, but we're anxiously excited for uh, we're, we're looking forward to it. So uh, my kids will go back to school kind of for half days. I think it's two or three days a week. So it's better than what they're doing now, but it's certainly not full fledged. So looking yeah. forward to that. Though. A little bit of yeah. normalcy. 
I look forward to uh, to hearing about it right here on the show. All right, so here's what I found out of Scientific American. It says, we learn faster when we aren't told what choices to make. The way we decide may even give insight into delusional thinking. This is, I, I'm kind of nerding out this show, just to be honest. There's a lot of um, brain science and behavior science. That, that kind of stuff, to me, is just endlessly fascinating. So why don't you... Get us into this idea a little bit. I just love the websites you turn us on to. Scientific American, psych.co, these other ones. I love these articles. They're great, <laughs> but I just, it makes me laugh. The different websites you and I find uh, stuff at. It's great. Uh, <laughs> it starts this way. In a perfect world, we would learn from success and failure alike. Both hold instructive lessons and provide needed reality checks that may safeguard our decisions from bad information or biased advice. But alas, our brain doesn't work this way. Unlike an impartial outcome weighing machine an engineer might design, it learns more from some experiences than others. A few of these biases may already sound familiar. A positivity bias causes us to weigh rewards more heavily than punishments. And a confirmation bias makes us take to heart outcomes that confirm what we thought was true to begin with, but discount those that uh, show that we were wrong. A new study, hmm. however, peels away these biases to find a role for choice at their core. A bias related to the choices we make explains all the others, says uh, Stefano Palminteri of the French National Institute for Health and Medical Research, who conducted a study published in Nature Human Behavior in August that examines this tendency. He said, in a sense, we have been perfecting our understanding of this bias hmm. using disarmingly simple tasks. Palminteri's team found choice had a clear influence on decision making. Participants in the study observed two symbols on a screen and then selected one with the press of a key to learn through trial and error, which image gave the most points. At the end of the experiment, the subjects cashed in their points for money. By careful design, the results ruled out competing, in competing interpretations. For example, when freely choosing between two options, people learned more quickly from the symbols associated with greater reward than those associated with punishment, which removed points. Uh, though that finding resembled a positivity bias, this interpretation was ruled out by trials that demonstrated participants could also learn from negative outcomes. In trials that showed the outcomes for both symbols after a choice was made, subjects learned more from their chosen symbol when it gave a higher reward and when the unchosen one would, would deduct a point. That is, in this free choice situation, they learned well from obtained gains and avoided losses. The result looked like confirmation bias uh, with the people embracing outcomes that confirmed they were right. But there was more to it. The experiments also included forced choice. Uh, and so basically, let me just stop there. What it's going on to say, basically, is that the best learning mechanisms we have uh, is when we're not told what choices to make, when we uh, decide uh when we're not just told choose that one or choose that one. And and it's, this is fascinating, especially, I don't know. I do find it fast. Maybe you're rubbing off on me here, just these <laughs> types of experiments and the way they set up these experiments and how they help them understand things. I just think is, is pretty interesting. What do you find out? Uh, what do you find interesting? Uh, Mr. Brain science about this experiment. <laughs> you have got to stop calling me that because people are going to think I actually know anything about brain science going for it. <laughs> I don't know anything about brain science. I'm just super, super interested in it. And I'm uh, drawn to guys like, you know, Dr. Jim Wilder has been on the show talking about, you know, neurotheology and that kind of stuff. To me, there's a couple of things that I think are pretty interesting. Um, we've talked a number of times about, you know, kind of the religion that we were raised in and somehow that's kind of 
grown and morphed into adulthood and then becoming pastors ourselves. I also think about education. You know, I was uh, I was homeschooled from sixth grade to graduation, and there's a there's a number of things that my parents did very intentionally that were you know pretty unorthodox that gave us a, a, a fair amount of choice that I'm realizing in hindsight in a lot of ways formed us to become who we are today, like helping us to think critically, helping us to uh, hold things in tension, that kind of stuff. I, I, I credit my parents for a lot of those things. I also think though about the, the negative aspect of how rarely a lot of schools and churches really embrace this. You know, sometimes the, the goal seems to be the opposite, like to take away choice and, and, to tell explicitly, this is what you are to do. This is how you are to live. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if, from your perspective even, are, are there implications here for education, for ministry that you think could be considered? I think one of the obvious, one of the clear ones is that there's also, if you embrace this idea of choice and that this is our best way to learn, then you've got to be okay and leave space for failure. Uh, right. That it's not just about the right answer. And, you know, and where that becomes difficult is in a school context, right? It's not just about the grade that you can get. It's not just about getting everything perfectly right. But uh, there's something to be said here about trial and error and about figuring stuff out and about being able to make mistakes. And uh, yeah. And then there's also something about just the idea that we're not always in control. And so, um yeah, I think there's a lot. How about yourself? What, what, especially for the church, does anything come to mind for you? Well, I think, I mean, obviously there are some uh, fairly deep theological conversations regarding choice that we, we could have, right? I mean, the, the, a centuries old debate of free will versus just tell us what or very, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. But I, and I have also read elsewhere and I think that there's some value to it. Some, a lot of this depends on wiring. Some people are like, don't, I don't want choice. Just tell me where we're going to dinner. Tell me what movie we're watching. Tell me, you know, like I, I think in, in, in micro ways uh, that, that can certainly be true. But if the goal is to help people learn uh, the most they can as quickly as they can, or, or maybe not even quickly as robustly as they can. Um, it does seem like, and I've read this elsewhere too, that, that choice is an important component. And conversely that things like shame and guilt May serve as motivators in the moment, but I don't think hold the same types of like long term. Like you could shame someone into let's bring it to the church world to tithe or to get involved. That might that might be effective for some for a season, but I don't I don't think it actually is healthy in a in a long term formational kind of way. And in a lot of ways, I think like a bit of what you were saying, too, I think it requires sort of playing the long game because it means that sometimes people will make choices you know, quote unquote, wrong choices. But the goal is like people's holistic health. It seems like it seems like that's um, borderline necessary, you know? Oh, yeah. And where this becomes really difficult is with children because we want to protect them. Uh, we don't want to. We want the best for them. I'm giving right. their quotes there. Uh, we want them to achieve. You know, oftentimes parents at their worst will take uh, kind of live vicariously through their kids uh, but what this kind of stuff is telling us is there's going to be real value allowing your kids to make mistakes, allowing your mm -hmm. kids to figure stuff out. But obviously being there alongside them then to help pick them up or help process and be there with them. It's not like, oh, just go out and make your mistakes and you know tell me how it goes. No, that's still the role of the parents to be there. Right. But we've talked about helicopter parenting or snowplow parenting or whatever. 
uh, that's probably runs against this and is probably not helpful. Well, and the article is going to end talking about mask wearing. And I think it's a it's an interesting way to wrap up these findings. And, you know, you'll have to go and read it for yourself to find out exactly what they said. You can do that along with every article over at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And to wrap up today's show, what CEOs really think about remote work. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good on this National Coffee with a Cop Day. Uh, <laughs> one of Brian's favorite national holidays. How do you even get a national holiday? Like, what process? I have no idea. We need to figure that out. We really do. And what, then, uh, what paperwork do you need to file? Like, what office do you need to visit to get a national holiday on this holidays calendar list? Holidayscalendars.com. Uh, that, to me, is the question of the ages. We and, um, and we create a holiday is what this is really going to come down to. What holiday would you create? I don't know. I don't know. But I want to even know if it's a possibility. So, well, yeah, just, that's great. Well, just, just riff with me for a second. What if you had to, if you had to answer right now, what, what holiday would Brian Fromm create? Oh, that's a really, that's a really good one because it's, it probably It's exists. not, it's not that good a question. It's not. Yeah. I did. T- I got excited the other day when I called it National S'mores Day because I was like, oh, you could sit by the fire, make a s'more. That'd be a good day. Like right now, if, t- if you knew tonight was National S'mores Day and you're like, we're going to go do that as a family, that'd be a really fun activity tonight. I mean, I think National S'mores Day probably already exists. Yeah, it's August 10th. That already it's already oh, a it's thing. Not cool so enough then. Come on. That should be in the <laughs> fall. I mean, it depends on where you live, Brian. That's I mean, don't be a geographist. Geog- <laughs> Is that a thing? No. All right. Uh, one of the things that we've talked a fair deal amount since, I guess, March now uh, is remote work. A lot of us are working remotely or in some kind of hybrid situation. A lot of us, I mean, a lot of people listening probably already did. You know, it's interesting that before all of this, I always felt like the people that could manage to literally work from anywhere were the people I was the most jealous of. You know, I have friends who are photographers or designers, and it's like, man, every week they're in a different country. This look, That looks amazing. Now that I'm spending as much time on my computer as I am, I'm like, mm, not as amazing as that. I mean, again, I'm not traveling the world, but it there is certainly like a screen fatigue of like, oh, boy. But we've done a number of articles where people and companies are finding like, wow, maybe, maybe I actually could be more efficient uh, or this actually is more feasible than we previously thought. So uh, two articles here. We may not get to the second one, but the first one from Wall Street Journal. What CEOs really think about remote work? Top executives at Netflix, BlackRock, and other companies weigh in on at-home arrangements, office reopenings, and the future of work. So it's a series of quotes, uh, most of them pretty brief, with regards to what CEOs really think. You want to you kick us off with one? I do. But first, let me say the author of this Wall Street Journal article, can that be a real name? Chip Cutter? That's, hmm. a, that's an awesome name if that's his real name. That's a great that name. Is, that is pretty baller. What's your name? I'm Chip Cutter. <laughs> you do kind of have to say it like that, don't you? You totally you, do. You, you couldn't say it like passively. No, you cannot. Uh, Reed Hastings, he's the co-chief executive of Netflix on Working From Home, said this, I don't see any positives. Not being able to get together in person, particularly internationally, is a pure negative. So that's a, that's kind of coming right out of the box there. Go, nope, I don't see anything positive about this. And he says the reason for that is that there's great value in being together in person. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't know necessarily why internationally is greater than that. 
but he said anything else than that is pure negative that that there's we lose a lot by not being in person which is particularly interesting for a company like Netflix to say, yeah. right? But uh, this next one, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock Inc. says, I don't believe BlackRock will be ever 100% back in office. I actually believe maybe 60% or 70%. And maybe that's a rotation of people, but I don't believe we'll ever have a full cadre of people back in the office. So that's not really his opinion for or against, but I do find it interesting that he's saying, yeah, um, maybe as little as 60% will ever actually be back in the office. I actually have no idea like how many people he's talking about here, but uh, I've, I've heard a number of people give numbers very similar to that. Yeah, and here's uh, a guy. He's the CEO of a robotic startup called... What's his, uh, did you have a name? What's his name, Ryan? Rajat Bahagiria. Eva Chef Robotics. And he said, this is what his company learned in attempting to work remotely. He said, we tried it. It's just not the same. You just cannot get the same quality of work. And so his isn't mm. so much about collaboration. I mean, the other, he just said, listen, the work suffers. The ability, the amount of uh, uh, the productivity suffers, the, uh, you know, maybe what they're able to accomplish suffers. And he's like, we tried it. It's just not as good. So that's interesting. Another, another CEO going, I don't like it, but for a different reason than the Netflix guy said. Yeah, Warren Buffett, who many of you are familiar with, he said the supply and demand for office space may change significantly. A lot of people have learned that they can work at home or that there's other methods of conducting their business than they might have thought from uh, what they were doing a couple of years ago. When change happens in the world, you adjust to it. Mm -hmm. So again, more just an observation about the general kind of vibe not necessarily for or against but uh, I, i'm i'm guessing a lot of people are going to feel similarly yeah so dana uh canady canady publisher of the flagship imprint of the simon and schuster book publishing unit of viacom she said this we're all grown-ups and we've adapted to these new work realities that's going to produce permanent changes in how we all work i'm getting my work done and so are my colleagues I don't have an issue with it. So she's more positive. She's like, listen, we're grownups. You should be uh, expected to get your work done, whether you're sitting in an office or you're sitting in your home. And uh, she says for her and her colleagues, it's working. Well, Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, which is a topic of conversation on the show a lot, said, in all candor, it's not like being together physically. And so I can't wait for everybody to be able to come back into the office. I don't believe that we'll return to the way we were because we found that there are some things that actually work really well virtually. So kind of saying both things like, no, oh, there's a lot that, which is interesting. The part of that statement that I find fascinating is that, that they would be surprised by any, anything regarding the virtual world that they were like, Oh, this actually does work well virtually. Like that makes sense for me to me for, you know, churches to feel that way, but to be the CEO of Apple, <laughs> that's right. That's and I right. probably wrongly just assume like you probably, I assumed had thought through all those things so for them to actually be a little surprised, like, oh, this actually does work well virtually, yeah. I think it's interesting. But, you know, him kind of offering his honest perspective that like, yeah, it's not the same. Yeah, some people are working virtually because of your products. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, exactly. Exactly. Uh, James uh, Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, said, I don't know the future better than anyone else, which is a good thing to admit. I think going back to work is a good thing. I think there are negatives to working from home. We've seen productivity drop in certain jobs and alienation go up in certain things. So we want to get back to work in a safe way. So you have another guy going, yeah, no, it's kind of hurt our productivity. We got to get back in the office doing it safely. Uh, that seems to be the common thread here of most of them. Some of them are you know, going, yeah, no, it's worked okay for this and that. But it seems like most of them are going, 
we lost some productivity, we lost community, we lost that kind of working with each other and it's hurt our business. Yeah, Laszlo Boxer, there's a sort of emerging sense behind the scenes of executives saying, this is not going to be sustainable. Um, which I do think the sustainability question is an interesting one. You know, you and I talked probably, I don't know when this kind of tapered off, but probably March, April, a little bit of May, we're sort of like, we talked about it as the adrenaline rush, like, okay, yes. got to course correct, got to figure out options. You know, you were talking about developing a, an online platform and all that. And then that, the adrenaline, at the very least, did kind of like wear off. Like, okay, I'm, I miss, I miss, you know, things being normal. But as we've yeah. said numerous times on the show, normal probably, probably isn't going to look normal, to be honest. Yeah. And oh. uh, I think, I think bracing ourselves for some of that is really important. Yeah, last one for me, Andy Owen from Herman Miller uh, said that unplanned kind of interaction that contributes so much to how we build relationships with people and how we build culture, those things are what are missing. And I think mm. we feel that in businesses, but we also feel that in churches and school classrooms and all across the board is that unplanned interaction that kind of builds not just relationships, but cultures. And uh, I, I, I resonate with that one. That one, you're like, yep, totally get that one. And that's, I think, what a lot of us, even as pastors, are feeling in our churches right now. Yeah, I'll end with this one. Uh, Ellen Coleman, CEO of 3D printing startup Carbon Inc. said, what I worry about the most is innovation. Innovation is hard to schedule. It's impossible to schedule. And that could be a whole other segment talking about the loss of sort of these like organic impromptu interactions that you you don't necessarily get when you're scheduling a Zoom call or a FaceTime. That They, they only kind of really happen when we're just, you know, spending time with people. And uh, like Every article, we'd love to know what you think. This and all the other ones we've talked about are up on the Facebook page. If you missed our conversation with Rich Velodas, highly recommend you check out yeah. the podcast. And as Brian mentioned, I'm leaving on vacation tomorrow. Have a great time, so man. Thanks, Have a great man. time. Thanks, man. I'll be gone a little over a week, so uh, I'll miss you guys a ton. But you're in good hands with Brian and John and cannot wait to be back with you all. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.